Hi, everybody. Thank you all for being here. My name is Sahar Amr, and I'm professor and chair of the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures at the University of Sydney. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the Sydney Ideas panel tonight. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. The panel on the Middle Ages Now is the first part of the conference, Cultures of Modernities in the Global Middle Ages, that would be taking place at the University of Sydney tomorrow, Friday, and Saturday. This is the inaugural conference of the newly established Global Middle Ages Faculty Research Group at the University of Sydney that I have established in 2015 and that I convene with Dr. Hélène Sirantoine in history and with my two colleagues from Macquarie University, uh, Professor Louise Darsens, Department of English at Macquarie, and Dr. Claire Monegal, also in history at Macquarie. This conference, like the panel tonight, is sponsored by the Global Middle Ages Faculty Research Group and has received generous funding from the newly founded Social Sciences and Humanities Research Center, the Middle Ages and Early Modern Studies Center, and the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences. I would like to take this opportunity to thank all our sponsors, and I'm also deeply grateful to Meredith Hall for hosting us in Sydney Ideas tonight. Before turning the microphone to Associate Professor Lynn Ramey, I would like to make some housekeeping reminders. Please turn off your cell phone or put them on silent. That's probably the most important reminder. And now I'd like to introduce um, Associate Professor Lynn Ramey, who will be chairing tonight's panel and introducing the speakers. Lynn Ramey is Associate Professor at Vanderbilt University in the US and is a specialist in medieval French literature and film studies. She is the author of Christian, Saracen, and Genre in Medieval French Literature and Black Legacies, Race, and the European Middle Ages. She has also co-edited Race, Class, and Gender in Medieval Cinema. She is currently working with recreations of medieval literature and culture in video games and is at the moment an international visiting scholar at the University of Sydney. Thank you again for being here tonight and um, please join me in welcoming our panel. I'm delighted to be able to introduce our three panelists today who will speak about the relevance of the medieval period to our own uh, culture today. Often the period between 500 and 1500 of the Christian era is seen as either quaint or scary or courtly or barbaric, a time of horrific crusades or of knights wooing ladies, but it is rarely seen by the public on its own terms and even more rarely as a time with any sort of impact on our lives today. Our speakers are scholars who have each made significant contributions to our understanding of how, theory, how theories of medieval periods shape and continue to shape the ways that we define ourselves today. I will introduce all three of the panelists and each will speak about her work. 
Afterward, we will have time for a question and answer period. Our first speaker will be Laura Doyle, who is professor of English at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. She serves as co-director of the World Studies Interdisciplinary Project and as the coordinator and principal investigator for the 2015-2016 Mellon-Sawyer Seminar at UMass Amherst. Her publications include Freedom's Empire, Race, and the Rise of the Novel in Atlantic Modernity, 1640 to 1940, Bordering on the Body, The Racial Matrix of Modern Fiction and Culture. Doyle is the recipient of two ACLS fellowships, a Leverhulme professorship at the University of Exeter in the UK, and a Rockefeller Fellowship for Intercultural Studies at Princeton University. Her current book project develops the framework of inter-imperiality for the study of literature and political history. She will speak today about why we continue to make a distinction between the medieval and modern periods, suggesting ways that this division between medieval and modern is inappropriate and potentially unhelpful or even harmful today. Our second speaker will be Geraldine Hang, who is Percival Fellow and Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature with a joint appointment in Middle Eastern Studies and Women's Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She founded and directs the Global Middle Ages Project, which is devoted to understanding the interactions between peoples from around the globe from about 500 to 1500 in the Christian era. Hang's work has been honored by six research fellowships, including the Winton Chair for Paradigm Changing Scholarship at the University of Minnesota, and a quarter of a million dollar grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities for an Institute for Advanced Topics in the Digital Humanities. She is author of the book, Empire of Magic, and is putting finishing touches on a book about race in the Middle Ages. She will speak today about the ways that race as a category of difference were constructed in the medieval period and the effects that that legacy has in some of our societies today. Our final speaker is Candace Barrington, who is professor, professor of English at Central Connecticut State University. She is the author of the books, American Chaucer's and The Letter of the Law, Legal Practice and Literary Production in Medieval England, as well as numerous articles on Chaucer and his world. And she has been awarded multiple research grants for her work. With Jonathan Shu, she directs Global Chaucer's and they maintain an active blog, have written several articles and are co-editing an essay collection, Chaucer's Global Pilgrimage. She is a founding editor of The Collaborative, developing the open access companion to the Canterbury Tales, which is a free online introduction reaching Chaucer's global audience of English readers. She is currently looking at the translations of Chaucer's work throughout time and around the world. Barrington will speak today about medievalism, or ways that the Middle Ages has long been used to construct Western Europe, both within and beyond Europe, as the center from which all progress unfolds, and how new paradigms, such as the Global Middle Ages Project, provide a model for shaking loose old assumptions and seeing more clearly the transnational network shaping our contemporary world. So those are our three speakers and more or less what they'll be talking about. Um, so let's start by welcoming Laura Doyle. Good evening. I'm honored to be here. Thank you to Lynn and Sahar and Claire and Alain and Louise and other organizers involved. Um, it's also my first trip to Australia, so thank you. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. Um, and I'm going to meet some in-laws for the first time while I'm here, so it's very exciting. <laughs> In many ways. Um, so, um, so as Lynn suggested, my remarks today will be less about why medieval now 
and um, more about why we might pause before using the word medieval, which is not to say not to use it, but just pause longer before we use it. Um, and especially in order to question the distinction between medieval and modern as it has been fixed into place. Um, I'm hoping just to plant some seeds of doubt about the current usage and also some curiosity, um, seeds of curiosity about what lies behind some of our um, common notions about medieval. So I'm gonna begin with, a, with, a, with an anecdote. Um, just raise your hand if you can't hear me. Um, it's, a, it's about a conversation I had with my brother-in-law some 20 or more years ago um, when our children were small. And uh, we were discussing the question of um, how the difficulties, the challenges of sh getting household and parenting task sharing right um, between our spouses and ourselves and um, finding the balance there uh, given different, different lives. So we quickly got into the realm of perception um, and the question of how some people see things that need to be done, uh, one partner and the other one doesn't and all of that. Um, and then finally Gavin, my brother-in-law, remarked, um, you know, the real thing is that um, each person always thinks they're doing more than the other person, um, which to me really struck, struck a chord of truth. Um, you're kind of aware of what you're doing, maybe less aware of what the partner is doing. Um, and so the remark has stayed with me over these years. Um, and whenever I'm wondering why my partner, my husband, doesn't do this or that around the house, I try to develop the habit of noting what he does do and what I don't do. Um, and, um, uh, make, you know, recall the this's and that's that I don't always do. Um, it's a repeated effort, I confess, even after a couple decades. Um, so, you're wondering what's this got to do with the medieval by now, and um, so what I want to uh, highlight is uh, the story, which I'll return to a little bit later, I think captures how our perceptions um, center on our own sense of who we are in the world and what we do, what we contribute. Um, so uh, this is, of course, sort of interpersonal relations 101, um, but we rarely carry it to the larger level to think about history um, and world politics and keep, keep this in mind. Um, we might talk about difference and acceptance of other peoples and times, um, but the talk about difference doesn't necessarily touch the usual assumptions about who has done or hasn't done what to shape the world that we live in. Um, so this is kind of a, partly a theme about the storyteller and being aware when we're the storyteller, um, what that does to the story, and what we see and don't see. Um, when it comes to histories, stories of medieval and modern, um, those words we use all the time so loosely in so many ways, um, the, the words too often encourage us, I, I think, to repeat the same narratives. Um, and there are, for instance, this is the one standard narrative, there are those peoples and countries who led us into the modern world, commonly understood to be Western Europeans. And there are the states and peoples who may have contributed a few things, you know, in the distant past at some point, but mostly recently are kind of lagging behind and working to catch up with and emulate those Western Europeans who got it right the first time. Um, so, um, again, back to the household chores, sometimes my husband and I realize 
we've been, one of us has been sort of deadly wrong um, and seriously underestimated something the other person is doing in the household, um, whether it's the bills or the diapers, and conveniently so, um, since it allows us that story of ourselves as, as a kind of lead contributor. Um, I actually have a very happy marriage, so I hope you're not getting the wrong impression here. Um, but um, I think this is real, and um, so it is, I think, with these assumptions about medieval and modern. Um, so to clarify what I'm pointing toward here, I'm just going to mention a few facts that recent um, scholars have, have brought more into the light, especially for those who are um, speakers of European languages. Um, so the more you consider the, the, some older research, but especially the last 20 years of new research, um, the more the distinction between medieval and modern begins to look a little less convincing. Um, so as Lynn hinted, when we think medieval, um, we might think courtly, we might think hairy clothing, um, we might think torture chambers and bloodletting, whether we're getting our ideas from Mon you know, Monty Python or Game of Thrones or um, some uh, from a grade school class. Um, and there's that, then that standard narrative of, of world history structured by the distinction between medieval and modern. Uh, Europe has led the world out of the Dark Ages into modernity, um, and sometimes when we refer today to peoples and places as medieval, we're often implicitly referring to non-European peoples and places, and we're wrong on both counts. Um, part of the problem has been that those who taught us the standard story had never learned all that much about other parts of the world um, during this so-called Middle Ages. Um, since before at least about 1200 or 1000, um, a little earlier, um, Europe itself was in fact kind of peripheral part of the world, almost third world, compared to other parts of the world um, where there were large, sophisticated, technically advanced states throughout Africa, Asia, and South America. Um, so just to consider some of the, some of the facts, um, even a brief browsing in the journal called the Journal of World History um, shows how many things upend that familiar narrative, um, including that many of the systems that we call modern emerged in a period we call medieval, not in the West, but in the global South and East, as well as to some extent in the pre-Columbian Americas. Um, so if you were to take a look at an older book now called Before European Hegemony by Janet Abulagud, um, you'd begin to get a sense of what I'm referring to here. So many of us assume, for instance, and many people have argued that there is a shift from medieval to modern in the world economy in approximately 1500 as Europeans begin to build a system we call capitalism. Um, and yet Abulagud gathers evidence, strong archival evidence um, of financial and trade systems connecting China, Africa, India, the Middle East in the 7th through 14th centuries. Others have confirmed this um, over the last 20 years since her book um, and tracked the continuities across the first millennia into our current millennia. Um, and these continuities include many dimensions we would typically call modern Western capitalist um, instruments for banking, checks, lending and credit rules, um, interlocking relations between states and merchants, as competitive and acrimonious as they are sometimes today, but still working together, 
systemic trade in staples as well as luxury goods, um, unequal arrangements in capital and labor um, of kinds that we, of course, have today. Also, the rationalization of laws cultivated by an educated clerical class, supporting state development, and purposeful development of technologies for trade and expansion of states, um, from the compass to the cannon to the dam. Um, so, in sharp contrast to images of decadent emperors um, just living in gloriousness and uh, ignoring everything else, trade and uh, traders and uh, states had close financial, religious, uh, bureaucratic ties, whether it was Ethiopia, China, or Byzantium. Um, so, um, again, I'm not going to go into many details here. I just want to make some broad points. Um, there were rules about what, where merchants stayed, the bills of sale. Um, taxes were also in place, as a number of scholars, Hugh Kennedy and Maya Schatzmiller for two, have, have noted. Um, and these taxes put to, use, put to use not just in palace building, but in state building, ship building, infrastructure building projects. Um, these relations, these state building projects with merchants and states working again in competition but also together with shared interests um, drove all kinds of infrastructure building, um, interconnecting material systems of roads. Um, those silk roads were roads, they weren't paved roads, but they were roads and someone built them. And they planned them and they engineered them and that engineering was based on science. So, so all of that, uh, Edmund Burke, a scholar, Edmund Burke III, not the 18th century guy, um, argues that uh, there are nine technological complexes that are sort of circuited, especially through Islam, uh, Islamic states uh, throughout the Middle East and both east and west of there, um, from the east to the west, including water technologies um, that he traces elements of which went into those medieval Flemish uh, textile markets, which many have located as one core for emerging capitalism. Um, some of those elements made their way via Spain over to the Americas, where they were built, they, they used them in combination with the complex water system management of pre-Columbian states to create some of the systems that Europeans then um, made their you know, built their profits on, along with some other practices that I won't go into. Um, so John Wills concludes that we need to think in terms of the interactive emergence of modernization projects since the first millennium in the Christian calendar. Uh, a lot of this data dismantles the binaries of pre-modern and modern, um, as well as west, east, north, south, and bring, brings into view this longer development of states, systems, and economic practices. Um, similarly, with educational institutions, um, by the time Europeans encountered Islamic courts in Spain and Africa, um, as when the princes were hosted or held um, in those places during crusades, the relationships were much more complex than warring. Um, what they discovered there were powerful, carefully organized, buildings and that held scholarly institutions and libraries that served as powerful organs of states. And so European scholars were drawn to the libraries in, say, Spain, um, 
in Al-Andalus um, in the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, and scholars have argued that what we may know as scholasticism in Europe got much of its catalyst from, from those interactions. And just to mention briefly, so while libraries in Europe in these centuries had maybe a thousand volumes, um, there were half a million books in the library of the vizier of the, of the North African Fatimid Caliphate of Alamein, 500,000. These were works of science, philosophy, um, religion, law, literature, um, and the scientists' books fed engineering projects of the kind I was just referring to. Um, others have talked about the ways that ideas um, and arts that we associate with the West in the Renaissance or Enlightenment periods in Europe were seeded in earlier centuries in Afro-Eurasia. Um, one scholar has come up with the term imperial envy to describe the attitude of Europeans as they discovered these advanced states in other parts of the world. Um, is that my timer? Okay. Um, so I hope I conveyed the gist of uh, some of the details here, and I'll just conclude now. Um, so it seems to me that the recent turn to the medieval, the way it gets used, especially the associations with barbarism, um, that we hear often lately, um, actually reflects our efforts to, to hold at arm's length a long history of both technologies, advancedness, and all that. And it, it, we're keeping that, but we're holding at length, I should say, that the violence that gets associated with medieval barbarism. Um, we want to attribute um, the violence that is our own to earlier periods, other peoples. Um, and uh, I'll take the risk of saying that this recent um, mass shooting in Orlando, Florida, um, I saw it, heard about it when I was in the airport, and um, they kept saying, this is the worst mass shooting in the US. So clearly the unnamed referent is, there are a fair number of mass shootings, especially in schools in the US. This is the worst one kind of medieval even, people have said. Um, so we, then you, if you look to the other ones and who's doing those and how those happen, and are, those, are we calling those people medieval? Not so much. Um, so just, just one contemporary um, instance of the way this word medieval um, works our unstated assumptions. Um, and finally, I think it's important to pay a different kind of attention to these periods and places we call medieval. Um, exactly in order to disabuse, disabuse ourselves of these self-protective stories about who does what in the world um, and the distinctions that we make among people. Um, I think it's helpful, the more you know about medieval, that the scholars at this conference are going to teach us so much about, um, it's important to understand what the whole world really looked like in pre-1500 periods, not just Europe. You get a very different picture magnificent cities, middle-class people, to use a, an anachronistic term, but still true, laughing in street cafes, drinking coffee, bureaucrats washing their dishes at night, forums like this one, all in the earlier periods. When we know this, we might more readily admit that we've been in this together for a very long time, and we created our possibilities and our problems together in this over many centuries, and they're ours to solve together. So, thank you very much.
I'm going to try and time myself, so I have my cell phone with me. First of all, thank you for coming here, for being here tonight. I'm impressed by the fact that you're here and how many of you there are, because it's dinner time. Um, this tells me a great deal. This tells me that intellectual conversation is valued at the University of Sydney, not that it's not valued at my university, and that people in Sydney in general are willing to forego or delay dinner in order to have intellectual, a lively intellectual conversation. I'm Geraldine Heng from the University of Texas at Austin. I've written quite a bit about um, the global Middle Ages and why it's necessary to look past this so-called temporal divide that seems to be routinely cloned you know, in the Western Academy um, in thinking about the past. I've talked about how there are modernities in so-called pre-modernity, as well as there are, of course, pre-modernities even today. I'm not talking about Donald Trump in particular, but you know what I mean. So if you look across deep time, and if you look transnationally and globally, you'll see that there are many gains to be had. For one thing, you'll learn that there were a number of industrial revolutions, and not just one taking place in the West. Yeah? My favorite example is Sung China in the 11th century, when the quantity of coal burnt in the iron and steel industries was 70% of the quantity of coal burnt in industrial Great Britain in the beginning of the 18th century. So what does it mean to say there was only one industrial revolution and it began in the West? Looking globally, all this becomes visible. Um, I just came from Singapore, my country of origin, and was at um, uh, the, uh, an exhibition of a Tang Dynasty Arab Dao uh, called the Belutung Shipwreck. This is a 9th century vessel containing 60,000 artifacts, of which 55,000 were ceramics, many of which are still in perfect condition and designed for mass export from China to the Middle East and to Southeast Asia, and incorporating the kinds of designs that Middle Easterners liked, that was to their taste, and that Southeast Asians liked. The colors, the designs, the motifs were designed for export. This is mass industry, you know. This is not a simple matter of a cottage, cottage industries in a sort of primitive period. So there needs to be various kinds of revisions in thinking about the past and its relationship to later periods, yeah? I'm particularly incensed by the uh, depiction of the medieval period as some kind of innocent pre-political time, devoid of the problems of later eras in modernity. No colonization, no race, uh, none, none of, the, um, none of the, the, the disasters and atrocities of the modern, which means that the atrocities of the medieval period um, can be dismissed and uh, re-signified as, you know, of relatively unimportant difference. I have argued in print and elsewhere and, you know, in person over and over again until um, canonical race theorists have begun to hear me. And my brief tonight is to talk about race. My brief from Saha Amer is to talk about race. That it destigmatizes certain kinds of behaviors and institutions and phenomena and practices in the medieval period by, by dismissing them as non-racial, as merely the result of xenophobia or chauvinism or fear of otherness and difference. Um, race is a name we give 
that attaches to very specific kinds of values. You know, we have that bears epistemological weight, intellectual weight, and political weight. Um, and not to name some of the institutions and practices as racial in the medieval period, is, is, to, is to not have an understanding of the long history of race and how certain kinds of instantiations, uh, certain kinds of inventions have been rewritten, revised, adapted over and over again through deep time. I always stress deep time as a very important category. So the racial. The medieval racial is dismissed because the primary discourse of the medieval period is religion and not science. Yeah? So the definition of race in canonical race theory fits basically the 18th century and high modernity best um, in terms of its definition because it's, it, it emphasizes scientific racisms. Although you will have noticed today that many of the racializing moments and the racial moments have to do with religion. Again, not to mention Donald Trump, but who, I ask you, has defined whole populations of diverse peoples as Muslim, as if that designation carries a kind of absolute and fundamental difference that has been the dis distinctive identifier of race throughout many historical periods. I define race, therefore, as not bearing having any kind of content specifically, but as a mechanism by which selective differences, distinctions, are essentialized so as to mark off those distinctions between peoples as absolute and fundamental yeah, between populations in order to prescribe or to allow for differential treatments within populations, with, with, between populations. So, uh, in the medieval period, one template of uh, the racial is medieval Jews. Um, they, are, they were obviously of a different religion, different culture, and the treatment of medieval Jews was exceptional and today would be defined as racial. Uh, they were forced to wear a badge to distinguish them from their neighbours in Christian countries. And in England, I like to say England was the first, England was the worst. A nice catchy way to talk to your students, you know. Um, they were required to document their business transactions at specific registries designed to monitor them and put them under surveillance. Um, eventually, they could not live except in cities and towns where there were such registries. They were um, subject to various fiscal extortions. They could not marry Christians, eat with Christians, live in Christian homes, rebuild their synagogues, or even pray too loudly uh, in, those, in those synagogues. Um, eventually, they were ghettoized um, by the Statutum de Judismo of, the, of 1275 in England, where they were not to live uh, in the same places where Christians lived. They were also thought to have a special unique stench um, that characterized them, and some were thought to have horns and a tail. They were thought to require to drink the blood of Christians because Jewish men either bled congenitally monthly, like menstruating women, or once a year at, in Holy Week. They were, they were caricatured in manuscript uh, margins where you see Jewish faces with beetling brows and hooked noses and everything else. So, you know, when men, women, and children have to wear a badge, when there are periodic pogroms and persecutions of a people, when they are massacred, when they are taxed fiscal, fiscally and then economically finally driven out, 
country after country, beginning with England in 1290, ending with um, Lithuania and Portugal at the end of the Middle Ages. And you don't call these things racial. What do you call them? I mean, it doesn't seem to me that discrimination suffices as, as a term. There are other examples. Um, I'm completing a book. That means next month or August, the footnotes will be written. Um, that talks not just about Jews, but talks about um, the racialization of Muslims in the international contest between Islam and Islamdom and Christendom during the medieval period. It wasn't Europe yet, it was Christendom. Um, that talks about the, um, the hardening of attitudes towards blackness and toward Africa in the medieval period. Um, it's up for grabs. I mean, you can argue back and forth as to whether blackness um, in antiquity had a particular kind of stable, continuous uh, negative valence. But in the medieval period, um, there is no question as to the hardening of differences and the valorization of whiteness as a category in European identity and the devalorization of blackness, um, an association of blackness with sin, evil, the devil, um, and sinners, self-proclaimed, and Ethiopia as a country of sinners. So I also have, uh, I also discuss um, um, other kinds of uh, other races uh, encountered by uh, medieval Europeans, uh, Native Americans encountered by Greenlanders and Icelanders uh, in the Vinland sagas through the voyages to the Americas. Um, the Global Middle Ages Project, by the way, has a digital project called Discoveries of the Americas, helmed by Lynn Ramey here, that also discusses some of these issues. Can't help but plug, you know, our digital projects here for a minute. Um, I discussed the Mongols and responses to the Mongol Empire. Mongols are vilified when the Europeans first meet them. They are cannibals, they are monstrosified. But as time goes on and um, their empire is... Um, there I go. Their empire is respected and become economically important to Europe. The attitudes toward them change. Um, I discussed to some extent uh, heresy and heretics who can be codified as racial others and end with uh, the Romani or so-called gypsies um, who came out of India and were enslaved in Eastern Europe, particularly in Romania, in Wallachia and Moldavia. So, you know, it, it began, this began as a small book uh, commissioned by the Medieval Academy of America and soon turned into a very, very large book. Chapter 5 is more than 200 manuscript pages, as it stands. Um, but, you know, it's been, it's been a long journey, and I hope it will, it will help to alter the conversation on configurations of race, the template on race, so that a, the long history of race is looked at rather than you know, truncated into just something, an institution merely that occurs in modernity. So please ask me questions. I really would enjoy having a conversation. Tomorrow, during the uh, conference, uh, I, will, I will speak more fully to the global aspects of um, this so-called medieval period, this interval between two ages of glorified authenticity and empire called Greco-Roman antiquity and the so-called Renaissance. Good evening, it's great to be here. Um, I want to join the other panelists. 
thanking you for being here and thanking the organizers for inviting us. Um, like Lynn and Laura, is this your first time too? Yeah. This is Geraldine, have you been here before? Never. Yeah. We're, we're first timers and we're having a great time. I can, my husband even said this afternoon, I think I could live here. So, um, but the Australians made sure I only had a three month visa. So I, uh, I won't be staying much longer, but I've had a great time. So I'm going to be coming um, at this topic from a different direction than the other two speakers. So they've been talking about what was going on in the Middle Ages. And I'm going to be talking about how we've thought about the Middle Ages after the Middle Ages and what, how that's shaped the way we think about ourselves. So I came to this topic about 20 years ago when I first started teaching. And one of the uh, first assignments, I was hired as a medievalist. I expected to be teaching medieval literature. And one of the first classes I was asked to teach was um, American literature. I hadn't read American literature in a long, long time. And I was not quite prepared to teach it, but I stayed two, two classes ahead of the rest of the, of the class, and we got through the semester. But one of the things that happened is that when we got to Ralph Waldo Emerson, I was astonished by some of the things that he said. If you've read Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know that his, one of his um, kind of main things is, is that the American literary scene needs to declare its independence from the, the dead European scene. And halfway through one of his essays, he talks about his love, his deep abiding love for authors like Chaucer and Milton and Shakespeare. And I thought, whoa, what's this about? And so I, I was very interested in, in how, what Emerson was thinking about, what kind of, what version of Chaucer he read, did he read him in Middle English, did he read him um, in translation, exactly what was his interaction with that. And I thought all I would have to do is just go find a book in the library and uh, get the answer. And seven years later, I wrote the book. Um, because no one had really thought about what it meant to read Chaucer outside of Great Britain. We had thought about uh, all the different ways that the British had read Chaucer, but we hadn't thought about what the non-Brits had read. And at the same time I was doing that with America, there were Australians uh, asking that same question about Chaucer's reception here in Australia. Um, I was, this afternoon, I drug my husband around the university uh, trying to get inside the Great Hall where um, there is a stained glass window of Chaucer. Um, and that's, a, that's very important to me that he's there because, um, as I will talk about later on, one of the ways that um, we established ourselves as um, British, whether in the United States or in Australia, is by importing these, this literary heritage and calling it our own. Um, and so having Chaucer in your great hall um, is very important. So we're hoping that maybe tomorrow we can talk to Suzanne, or Craig, is that who? That, uh, and they will let us inside. Apparently it's not easy to get inside the great hall these days. Um, but in addition to thinking about Chaucer's um, Anglophone uh, reception, so in Australia, Canada, US, I've also, uh, in the last few years, been thinking about how Chaucer has been received outside of the, that inner circle of Anglophone. And I've been interviewing translators um, in uh, Brazil, Iran, Japan, China, um, Turkey, 
um, South Africa, Af Afrikaans, to learn about what they've, uh, how they've translated Chaucer and what they, can, what they see in Chaucer that we can't see. And in this process, I've become aware of how we have used the recreation of the medieval past, not only to, to think about Chaucer and the way we understand Chaucer, but how we understand ourselves and, the and our relationship to the rest of the global community. And so that's what, I'm not going to be speaking much about Chaucer tonight, I'm going to be talking more about how we've used this phenomenon of medievalism, that, you know, where we go back from the here and now and look at the there and then and think about, try to understand it, and how that, that, those varying understandings over the centuries have created the ways that we think about one another. So the work of medievalism began when the early modern humanists defined themselves against the previous era. They didn't call it the Middle Ages, and they didn't call it uh, medieval, but they did see themselves as different. They saw themselves as rational and forward-thinking, and that the men and women of the previous era, what we now call the Middle Ages, were superstitious and backward. They lived in a fallen era after the decline of the ancient Roman civilization. So this, that, that, that being booked in between the, the um, ancient civilization and and the modern is why it developed that name of medieval or, or Middle Ages. This characterization of the era between the classical and the Renaissance stuck, right? So, no, so if you've taken any classes in medieval literature, medieval history, medieval philosophy, one of the things that you often learn is that this was an age of decline. And anything that you wanted to tar as negative, you could call it medieval. Um, so that the, um, the, the terrorists are often labeled as medieval. We have the, um, the great, um, from Pulp Fiction, you know, I'm gonna get medieval on you, right? Medieval is, is a derogatory term, and it carries this baggage of profound ignorance. It's important to note that by the 18th century, that term medieval, was no longer just talking about what was happening in Western Europe. It also was a way to, it had begun to describe this period of profound ignorance that had enveloped the globe. That the entire globe was covered with darkness, according to 18th century philosophers. And that it was only when the Europeans, Western Europeans, um, opened up into this period of, of, of light and renewed learning that the globe was able to tar, start um, um, ascending from that, uh, from that darkness. So when we talk about um, the global Middle Ages, we have, to, we have to, one of the things that um, Gerald, Geraldine and... Um, her group have been doing is, is helping us understand that that phrase medieval can't be used by us to talk about the rest of the globe. At the same time that that sense of um, that um, medieval is um, a, a term that's used to designate ignorance, backwardness, in the late 18th and early 19th century, the term, um, the, 
the notion of the Middle Ages as the source of the roots of our national cultures started taking place. So you have this, this tension between, it was a period of ignorance, and it's also where our, it's the, 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 the seedbed of our, our, our cultures. And not too coincidentally, it's the time of colonial expansion, right? So it, you, they started looking to the Middle Ages as the, the source of their culture, and it's also when we have the colonial expansion happening. So at this point, we see the term medieval being used to control and dominate the newly colonized territories in two ways. So one, it's used to create the appearance that the colonial territories were naturally contiguous with Great Britain. And I'm going to be talking primarily about um, the British experience. So um, I know in the United States, and I've seen it here in um, Australia, we see a lot of Gothic buildings. <coughs> Gothic buildings were, had, were, were long um, history by the time they were built here, but they were brought here to, to give the sense of being British. Um, I come from um, a very rural part of Texas, and we have Gothic buildings there. They have no place there except to establish a certain continuity with the, um, with the Anglo um, religious and legal traditions. So it, the, the medievalism was used to create the sense that there was this kind of territorial uh, continuity between Great Britain and um, its, its, um, its colon, colonies. But at the same time it was doing that, the term medieval was also being used to tar non-European peoples as backward and to justify their domination by the colonizers. So we see this um, happening when they discuss Indian history, um, uh, the subcontinental Indian history. They, dis they described um, the Hindis as being ancient, the Muslim period as being medieval, and that they that the Indians uh, were only brought out of that by the domination of the British Raj. So one of the things I just I want to close with is to remind you that there's a certain way, in that the way, certain way in which the term medieval has allowed us to normalize both the, the Middle Ages as backwards and other cultures as backwards, that the only source of enlightenment has been that which has um, emanated from the from Western Europe. Projects like uh, Geraldine's are helping us see the Middle Ages anew, and they should also be helping us to see these same networks anew um, in our own contemporary time period. Thank you very much. At this point, we'll open the discussion for questions. If anyone has a question they'd like to ask. Uh, okay. Have any thoughts about the role um, of nationalism versus tribalism uh, in terms of understanding uh, at least what we were talking about, uh, Middle Eastern, Middle Ages, and how, uh, you know, versus um, the Middle Ages in the West? Um, Could you just repeat the very first part of that? Because just any, oh, does I uh, just wondering if any of you had any thoughts about the role of nationalism versus tribalism, tribalism. in in, in moving from the Middle Ages to non-Middle Ages. That's like a Laura Dahl question to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, uh, just to be very brief, at least initially, I think I would um, probably not speak in terms of either of those terms in these earlier periods. Um, one of the things that I have worked on lately is um, is the value of thinking in terms of uh, what I refer to as large advanced states. They were empires. Um, they were expanding, they were colonizing, they were, again, building infrastructures and doing all the things empires do. Um, and um, so, to my mind, it's, it, first of all, just useful to, and that's why I use this term, inter-imperial, that those relations among empires and the position of peoples living amid empires have shaped how history has unfolded. Um, but, um, and so the word nation, of course, is, is also one of those things attributed to Europe starting after the Westphalian settlement, la la. Um, so um, a lot of those things we call nations were also empires. So the word nation operates in a lot of ways and one of them, just one of them, has been to sort of allied an imperial formation as a national formation. They're both in a sense. Um, so, but I, I think that um, what you had in terms of communities within empires, and all many of them were uh, multi-confessional, that is many religions within, many kinds of people um, of different origins, languages, etc., cetera, uh, communal practices, there, there would be a range of terms to use to describe those polities, those communities. Um, tribe might might be one, but I think there there would probably also be others. Um, there were urban populations. People use the term city-state. So, so I think um, that, to my mind, the terms nationalism and tribalism. Um, Aren't, wouldn't be very helpful if I were trying to describe the dynamics among states and communities in these earlier periods. You know, um, something just occurred to me also. I mean, um, if you take Ben Anderson's definition of nationalism, of the nation, not the nation state, but the nation as an imagined political community, in the late medieval period, you do, some, you do see certain countries, England is definitely one, that are beginning to romantically imagine themselves as imagined polities, polit political communities. Um, tribalism, on the other hand, I mean, the largest tribe would be, in the medieval period, Christ Christians, right? So you would, you would imagine that if tribalism has, has hold on the imagination, um, anyone who is a Christian would be acceptable and would be embraced within a larger community. But on the other hand, you do see, however, medieval England warring against and enacting absolute and fundamental differences um, against um, the Scots, the Welsh, and the Irish. You know, um, you could say these are nationalistic um, moments, but they, they, are, they are peculiar because all the Scots, the Welsh, and the Irish are also Christian in this period. Tribalism should hold everyone together. And yet, the process of nation-making, so to speak, is also a process of race-making, so to speak, because differences between the type of Christianities uh, professed by the Welsh, the Irish, and the Scots are theorized and conceptualized. So, you know, the Irish, who had uh, Christianity long before the English, had the wrong kind. 
they have the wrong kind of Christianity. You know, they don't, they don't have Easter at the right time. They, they don't have enough martyrs. You know, they, they, they belong at the bottom of an evolutionary ladder that they must climb in order to have the right kind of Christianity and be civilized like the Anglo-Normans of England. Of course, by the end of the Middle Ages, in Spencer's time, they're still climbing that, la that ladder. Never, they never arrive. That's the nature of evolutionary racism, is that you never get there. You're, you're always encouraged to get there, but you don't arrive. But anyway, this just random thoughts. I tend to speak for the unconscious when I don't have a text. I've just been, I've been training my unconscious over the years to try and be more, you know, literate. But it takes time. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? Um, back in the back. Um, I was intrigued when I first walked in talking to Sahar about the possibility of putting the sort of, um, I guess, the lens you're putting across, in some senses, the Northern Hemisphere onto the Southern Hemisphere. And I'm very compelled by what um, Associate Professor Heng saying about the similarities between, I guess, the movements across the North and then I think of the Nisian invasion across, uh, no, well, is it an invasion? I don't know. But the movement of, of people from, you know, Taiwan all the way through down into through what we call Southeast Asia now and into the Pacific, the colonisation of the Pacific, which probably was more of a real colonisation because while there were at least one group of people, the Moriori in New Zealand, perhaps before the Maori, there were, it, was, it seemed to be kind of an empty space into which people moved. But is that, is that something that you could envisage perhaps in this great history, this great discovery you're putting together of the medieval period and all this you know, colonisation, invasion, racialisation you know, across the southern hemisphere that this was happening? Because I'm thinking too that in the Pacific it's seen as a kind of movement of people less primitive than my own, how we're, I'm Aboriginal Australian, we are seen as not having done anything as exciting as any of the sort of things you're talking about in the medieval period in the north. And in fact, I feel we probably were doing much more exciting things and probably more sophisticated social things than anybody realises. But again, across the Pacific, this is happening too. Anyway, I'm just musing. And is, could that be envisaged in your work as well, perhaps? Um, you know... We, 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 are a, we are a group that moves as slowly and as carefully as we can because we are sometimes challenged by questions that we feel we need to answer and address. So we, are not, we have not thought about um, the, the Austro-Pacific as yet um, as, as a global zone in pre-modern time. Um, what, we, so what some of us have thought about is the relationship between the North and the South, for example, in terms of China and Southeast Asia both maritime Southeast Asia and um, pen, uh, continental Southeast Asia. My friend Michael Pewitt at Harvard, for example, likes to point out that really China was not a closed entity the way it's been taught in Chinese historiography. Northern China's relationships are really with Eurasia and with the nomad confederations. Southern China's relationship, especially coastal Southern China, are with Yunnan and continental and maritime Southeast Asia. Um, there is work done by Jeff Wade at ANU, for example, um, on how certain Yunnanese families who are not by any means Han Chinese or Chinese at all, 
conceptualized themselves as Chinese over periods of time through political maneuverings and relationships with the ruling class in China. And over generations, they then suddenly magically become Han Chinese when they are originally Southeast Asian, you know, Vietnamese and Yunnanese, Burmese, all sorts of other people. So um, what I'm excited by are the, the North-South relationships that we are able to trace through archaeology, through linguistics, through um, trade, um, social sciences, and so on. Um, as for, as for uh, Polynesia and um, Austro-Polynesia, this is something to think about. You know, we, we only can work insofar as we have allies and comrades and um, colleagues. We would like to have a conversation with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there was a question up here. I don't... Judging by the title, The Middle Ages, now, I wasn't quite sure what to expect uh, from this discussion. And it hasn't turned out anything like the way I expected it. Um, there was mention was made of colonialisation in the, I think one of you said that it started in the late Middle Ages. Towards, I thought that's what I heard. Maybe I was maybe I was wrong, but it refers to European nations colonising African nations. Now, in the Middle Ages, now I'm not quite sure exactly what that period, by your definition, spans. But my understanding is there was a great colonisation from the, from the 700s on by the Arabs. We had two superpowers. We had the, the Byzantine Empire and the Persian Empire fighting each other to a standstill. Mm -hmm. okay? And then out of nowhere comes, come the Arabs. And in a matter of 100 years, they colonised about 70% of Christendom, we'll call it. You know, all the way up North Africa, Turkey, all these countries were, were colonised by the Arabs. But we never hear that term in relation to colonisation. We always refer to it in a self-flagellating way about the West colonising the Africans and, and, uh, and the Americas and, and whatever. Do you is, know why is, this, this... Is there a particular reason for that? Yes, it, the reason is we're all Europeanists. And so we discuss Europe. I mean... Um, we all work on Europe, we are Europeanists by training, and therefore we tend to think deeply and critically and often about Europe. Um, but among non-Europeanists, for example, again, Jeff Wade is an example, ANU, I suggest you look him up because he's your neighbour, um, likes to talk about Chinese imperialism. You know, like, he reads the, uh, the imperial troops of uh, Admiral Cheng He, you know, the famous journey around the Cape of Good Hope, as shock and awe as a version of Chinese imperial might exercising its muscle in Southeast Asia. He points out how, for example, when they got to um, Java, uh, to Southeast Asia, maritime Southeast Asia, they sometimes removed the, the, the ruler, the presiding ruler, and put a puppet of their own that they preferred. So that's very interesting. What I'm interested in, because I come from a former colony, I come from a post-colony of Singapore originally, is the kinds of template that European colonization in the medieval period created for later European colonizations. Because, you know, we all work on homologies across deep time. Homologies and resemblances. For example, the Crusades. The Crusades created four colonies um, in Outre-mer, you know, um, uh, the, the so-called Crusader states at, um, 
Antioch, Edessa, um, Jerusalem, and Tripoli. Yeah? And well, then this was called Novi Coloniae, but by Guibert de Nogent, the, the Abbey of Nogent at the time. And this creates a new kind of template for colonization because Roman colonization did not come with the book, only with the sword. When you add the coming of, um, of, uh, of European troops with the book, with Christendom, with the idea of Christianity um, as part, as, as the cultural soft power of the hard power of political military force, you have a very useful template for the later colonizations that also come bearing the sword, so to speak, and the book, you see. So this is interesting thinking for me. Um, but I'm sure, you know, if you speak to your colleagues who work on, you know, um, Islamicate civilizations and on Chinese civilizations and on African civilizations, you will find that colonization as a concept for them has different kinds of bearings, configurations, and valencies. I think um, also, Laura yes. was thinking in terms of this. Um, I, I'll just add that um, that's not, I'm, when I talk about empires and the interactions of empires and, and what I've written, um, I do not start with Europe. Um, I've made some people uncomfortable for the very reason you're naming. Um, and um, so, I mean, it's quite clear that empires are very old, um, and that's large states who expand and attempt to control other polities, right, um, through whatever means. I'm going to add that the um, colonization through translation, books, literate um, institutions predates Europe as well. China, you know, invented paper. Um, and uh, early printing techniques, you know, we're talking the 7th century, 8th century, uh, paper is uh, invented much earlier, and um, begin to form a literate society, and it is, there's a book by Mark Lewis, uh, something about China and uh, paper, sorry, um, I can find it later, but that um, makes this point that the imagined community is created often through books, through you know decrees that can now be sent and all that. So um, paper money comes with that as well. So the the state and the economy are very connected here to the literate institutions. Um, so I wouldn't start late. I think it's important to understand. Um, not, I'm not as interested in the comparisons as in the interactions. So my sense is that what we call globalization now and modernization now is a very old process. Who knows when it began, but it comes with competition among states who are borrowing all, all of each other's techniques, partly so as to deal with each other, sometimes to colonize certain populations, learn their languages, learn their beliefs, and then work with those. Uh, that's an old, old process, and um, it was global, you could say, at least when um, the Americas and the other continents started to interact with each other. Um, but the processes that led to that meeting moment and to all these things we call modernization are, are just very old. People have been creating technologies and warring with each other um, for a very long time, as well as enlightening each other through them. And Candace, did you um, I'd also kind of emphasize that there's this um, huge difference 
are the ways that the words conquest and colonization get deployed um, in our historiography. So that I was always taught, I never heard that it called um, the, uh, the Arabic colonization, it was always the Muslim conquest of, of, of North Africa and, and into to Spain. Um, in the United States, there was, it was always interesting, the Spanish were conquistadors, <laughs> They conquered, the English were um, colonies, right? And so there's that, there's, there's that distinction there between, even though they both come with the sword, <laughs> there's the, one seems a little bit more benign and more, we're here to help. We're not here to conquer, we're here to bring enlightenment to you. And so I think the, the ways those two terms get used are important for us to be aware of. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yes, back in the back. There's a microphone, yeah. Um, thank you for an interesting discussion. I, I just would like to throw in a little bit different uh, view on medieval and Middle Ages. I think we have had medieval and Middle Ages for millennia, and you know, it doesn't matter if you're in Brazil or you're in the Stone Age or you're, you're in, you know, in, in, in Europe or whatever. You always have an, an, an wave of ups and downs in civilizations and in economies and societies and followed by, call them dark ages or middle ages or whatever. So it's far more a continuation and it's happening everywhere. It's not just in Europe, it's just happening everywhere. I think we, we've studied perhaps Europe more than, than other cultures, but I would argue that we go and perhaps we enter into another middle ages in, in 50 years, 100 years, 200 years or whatever. So I would like to have your thoughts on more a continuation process of Middle Ages and not necessarily linked to the sort of Middle Ages that we usually talk, talk about. Candice, do you want to start? Um, yeah. Um, one of the interesting things that's happening in, in medieval studies right now, or the study of the Middle Ages, is, is that sense that there's... It's not as much of a period of decline, but just a, a, a continuity. And, um, and I, that's one reason why I'm, I, I don't have another word for that period between 500 and 1500 in Europe, of, other than calling it the millennia between 500 and 1500, that doesn't, <laughs> and even that is so Eurocentric, right? Because yes. um, then we've got we're talking about in terms of the Christian era. You know, it just, it's the vocabulary for talking about this. Every time you try to step out of it, you just step into another, um, into another mess. Um, and so we're, in a way, stuck with that term medieval that was, we inherited from um, the early humanists and the Enlightenment period. Um, and yes, there's always cyclical but I think one of the things that we're, I find so much more interesting is that, that sense of con continuity, that there wasn't this, also, you know, that the barbarians knocked on the, the gates of Rome, things fell, and, and you know, it, um, it was completely different from there on out. Um, and you know, I often wonder, <laughs> if somebody, look, you said in 50 years, if somebody two generations from now looks at us and go, oh, look, that was at the beginning of the, of the Dark Ages, right? You know, we, we consider ourselves at the apex. And, you know, throughout the Middle Ages, they called themselves moderni, 
Mm-hmm. Right? They, yes. they were moderns. They didn't see themselves as having declined. Um, they were Christian. The ancients hadn't been Christian. Um, they had certain technologies that the ancients didn't have. So, and there was this universal language that everybody could, con- could, could share information in. So they, they didn't perceive themselves as in a decline. That's something that got imposed on them um, later on. And that's one of the things that's complicated about the term medieval. It's usually, we don't say, I'm medieval. We usually say, you're medieval, right? <laughs> it's something we label you with. And, and that's what makes it so potent, and it's what makes it so dangerous. Yes, thank you. Geraldine, uh, you raised a lot of uh, interesting points. Um, you mentioned 1500 as a turning point. Uh, my intersection is 1492. Oh, when, my uh, 1500 is a very Ferdinand flexible... Ferdinand and Isabella expelled the last of the caliphs from yes. Granada, and Christopher Columbus became the first conquistador, as Fendas um, yes. uh, mentioned in uh, the Afri- New Americas. Um, You also mentioned uh, Benedict uh, Anderson and the idea of soft power and imagining communities and futures. Can I take you forward a little bit? America is well known for a great cultural diplomacy in Hollywood. Do you think that's part of the homologous series that we're seeing um, evolving um, currently? And, yeah, what's your prognosis for that? Well, um, I... my, my, My... my um, dates are always very flexible. It's because I'm not a historian. Um, 1500 is a flexible. It's, it's 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue is good for me too. Um, wow, that was doggerel. <laughs> um, um, yes, uh, Hollywood is soft power. There are many kinds of soft power um, in the medieval period. In the medieval period, religion is soft power. Um, when it becomes obvious to Europe that the Crusades as military ventures are failing, it doesn't stop them from launching crusade after crusade, of course, but um, from the 13th century onwards, schools of learning in foreign languages are instituted to try and spread Christianity um, through conversion. Dominicans, Franciscans are sent out into the world as sort of you know, soft power police in the world to try and make the rest of the world more like Christendom. Um, so that is a form of soft power. There were even schools set up for women um, so that these women could minister to the foreign infidels women out there um, to take care of them medically and to also convert them. So there were schools for Arabic and uh, Hebrew and uh, Tartar languages um, you know, as a form of medieval soft power. I mean, this is how the language schools got set up. Um, and how the chairs of foreign languages got set up in the medieval period. I'm not, I, I see homologies, but I also see differences. I'm not one of the medievalists who are arguing for um, a kind of absolute sameness between the medieval period, co-identity between the medieval period and the modern period. Um, if you look at an institution like slavery, for instance, you can see that slavery has always been with us. Slavery is like death in taxes, you know? it never really completely goes away. Just like alcohol, there's alcohol in all periods because somebody has watched something ferment and gotten high um, and developed their own version of alcohol, you know, palm wine or rice or grapes or or bran or whatever. Um, Slavery has always been with us, but medieval slavery looks very different from the early modern plantation field slavery of the early modern periods. You know, it's more domestic-based and household-based. 
And depending on what part of the world you're from, even not in Europe, but let's say you're in Islamdom, Islamic societies, being a slave can be an important precondition for, the rise to, for rise to the highest power in the land. If you were in Mamluk, Egypt, from 1250 onwards through about the 16th century, you could not be the sultan unless you had once been a purchased slave. Of course, you have to be male, right? That goes without saying. And if you are a woman in Islamic societies and you birth the uh, heir to the caliphate and you become mother of the caliph, you could rise to the highest you could arise the highest position in the land. This is not true, obviously, for plantation and field slaves in the early modern period. I'm big on being careful about your distinctions and your terms and working, working carefully. And we're not saying, you know, just because we want people to see that there are transactions across the so-called modern, pre-modern divide, doesn't mean we think that, oh, really, you know, it's all the same thing, medieval, modern. Okay, all the same thing. It is not. And we work carefully in different periods, focusing on particulars. We might have time for one more question. Hello. Could I ask you um, to reflect on teaching the Middle Ages in the 21st century? I mean, what, what do you find um, 18 to 22-year-olds bring with them to the classroom? Are you uh, surprised by what you find? Are there persistent nuggets that you find difficult to break? Are you inspired by pop culture? Are they inspired <laughs> by pop culture? What is, what is the world in which you live with youngsters these days? Um, I'll start with that. <clears throat> One of the hardest things is that we live in a very sec secular culture, and most of my students don't know much about Christianity, even though they may be professed professing Christians. Um, they don't know their Bible. <laughs> I know, I'm sounding like a nun. But, the, you know, they, the, you know the, the kind of basic things that one would like to, for them to be able to know, they don't know. Um, on the other hand, they um, are often quite fascinated by the Middle Ages, um, and pop culture um, is a good gateway drug uh, to in, into teaching them about um, uh, the Middle Ages. Um, I teach, um, because I teach literature and because I teach Chaucer, I often teach them in Middle English. And one of the things I have to do is slow down at the very beginning and teach them the language. It's, it's um, that, that myth that pervaded um, Chaucer pedagogy for decades that it's easy to pick up Middle English is a bunch of malarkey. And it's even more difficult for students now who tend to not be, I don't want to say as literate, but they're not, um, they're, their worlds are not as language-based. Um, they are, in some ways, because of texting, believe it or not, they are a little, it, picking up a language that isn't spelled correctly, what they would, it's, you know, so Middle English doesn't, isn't spelled the way they expect it to be spelled. It's not as problematic for them because they're used to, to spelling being um, often uh, phonetic rather than um, the, um, the, the correct uh, spelling. So they come with a very mixed bag of, of, of skills, the some that, that make me cry and some that, that make me like, oh, this is, you find this much easier than, than I did because they're not expecting the spelling, to, for instance, to be the same. And they're just very enthusiastic ab about the Middle Ages. Um, I, I, I do use modern films for teaching. Um, I teach a course called Envisioning Muslims, the Middle Ages and Today. I began teaching this course 
to honor my Muslim students in Singapore when I taught in Singapore. And I have long wanted to stop teaching this course in the United States, but cannot anymore. I do it now as a matter of duty. So we, we, we use the contemporaries sometimes to reach, uh, to teach them the medieval. So they, they read translations of um, Usama Munkid's biography, as well as Behadin's uh, biography of Salahuddin, um, but they also watch Kingdom of Heaven, and we talk about the Crusades. They read Crusade literature and everything else. You know, they watch Caramel by Nadine Labaki, and um, Where Do We Go Now? You know, by, uh, they watch, um, you know, so it, 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 it works. It, it's useful that way. But I also teach, you know, literature of the Middle Ages in translation, which is a survey. I also teach um, uh, global medieval literatures, where we begin with the Vinden sagas and gradually move eastward. We do a Sundiata, the we do, of, uh, we, we do uh, Voyage to Calicut and Vijayanagara by Abdul Raza Samakandi. We go to the Mongols. We, we're going to do the Sajarat, Sajarat Malayu, uh, Malay Peninsula, and so on. I assume they know nothing, you know, um, but I make them do research. I don't give them and spoon feed them anymore because if you, I've learned over the years, if you just give them everything and then test them and they regurgitate everything, they'll forget everything in five minutes once they walk out of class and the term is over. Um, on the other hand, if they do research and they do presentations based on their research and they do collaborative projects um, with their fellows on that research, that knowledge stays with them forever. I, if I go online and Google, I can still find people saying, I wrote on women in the crusades in Geraldine Hanks' class and I'm so proud of my essay, here it is. You know? Whereas they will not remember the name of the Chaucer teacher who taught them last semester. You know, the woman with the Brooklyn <laughs> accent, that one? Yeah. So, so it, various things work. Undergraduates learn best when they do the learning and you make them do the learning. So I don't give them the history of Islam anymore. You know, when I teach Envisioning Muslims, the first four presentations are history of Islam, life of the prophet, differences in Islam, Islamic civilizations then and today and then we move on. They do, the, they do a lot of that work, and I think it, it, it works. The, the, the best compliment I've ever had was from a student who said, I always dreamed college would be like this, and it never was until now. Wow. Yeah. So I, th I think, you know, all kinds of teaching methods work. I don't teach medieval studies, <laughs> so I have no, no reflection on that, but I, um, I am curious to hear if either of you have a comment or, or any, or other medievalists in the room, but um, if, if students are drawn to it, why do you think, um, for instance, Candace, when you say they, they're very interested, what do they bring? What kind of curiosity and why do you think? A lot of it comes from gaming, uh -huh. mm. the, the gaming culture, so they're aware of that. Mm -hmm. um, and Game of Thrones, too. It's very popular. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. So, um, there's a certain kind of medievalism yeah. that permeates our culture that, they're, that they, have, they, they tap into. And they're very surprised when the Middle Ages I teach them doesn't correspond with what they've seen in that. But that's, that's okay, because it gives us something to push against, mm -hmm. right? It's, it, we're, not, um, we're not fulfilling their expectations, but helping mm -hmm. them see how their own, their own assumptions about the past might need to be corrected a bit. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm just, I'm just curious about that last remark. Um, does the um, 
does the medievalism that the students bring uh, carry less baggage than the medievalism that, that you were talking about in your presentations about sort of, you know, the problematic term, the pejorative term, medievalism? Does, is there a kind of uh, way in which the popular culture is, is um, I don't know, un unlading that term? It's so romantic you're asking a question of your wife. <laughs> um, well, I'd be happy to jump in there about the gaming situation anyway. Yeah. I think so. I think, uh, I think that, for, at least for medieval video games, uh, it, it's created a different culture, and uh, particularly as games are being created by women, um, as there are more stronger female characters, that there's, they, it's not the real Middle Ages, perhaps, but it doesn't have necessarily a negative value to it, so that when you approach it from a more positive point of view, they're, they're willing to accept that. They don't see it as a, necessarily a dark ages. Yeah, they may see, it, may be, it may be a very um, flat version, and usually yeah. a very violent version of the Middle Ages. Yeah. <laughs> usually. Um, I have, when my children were little, I would go read at their school, and um, this, in second grade class one time, I read to them a version of Sir Gawain in the Green Knight. It was Sir Gawain and the Loathly Lady. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, we were talking about it, and one little boy who was a little hyperactive could hardly stop. He was so excited, and he said, so you mean back then you got to ride a horse, and when you saw somebody, you could just stab him with a sword? <laughs> you know, and there was, I think there is that kind of sense that it was kind of this unbridled violence that every little seven-year-old, or not every, but many seven-year-old boys found very, find very appealing. Um, and we have to disabuse them of that, but I think you're right. It's not the dark ages, mm -mm. right? Well, I think we should thank our, our panelists. This is a very interesting discussion. Yeah. And, and we'll very enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Very enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs>